Trump campaign backtracks on claims he bought a gun while under felony indictment. Plus, Chuck Michelle of the California Rifle and Pistol Association on the ruling against the state's magazine ban and the governor's new gun restrictions. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Oh, the devil's got no All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com and a CNN contributor. Uh, this week, we are focusing on California once again. And if you want to keep up to date with all the gun news that's coming out of the state, because there's a lot, and as well as the rest of the country, you can head over to TheReload.com and sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now. You'll get one email a week that sums it all up pretty well, I think, at least. And uh, of course, you can also buy a membership to get exclusive access to additional reporting and analysis that you will not find anywhere else in the country. But uh, you'll also get the show a, a day early and you'll be able to hear this interview we have lined up for you with uh, we always like to have people who are directly at the center of these issues uh, with us. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that this week. We have Chuck Michelle, who is the president of the California Rifle and Pistol Association, which is directly involved in the lawsuit that uh, was just won in California against the state's magazine limit uh, and is likely going to be involved, I would imagine, in future lawsuits against the gun control laws that the governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, the Democrat, just signed there. So welcome to the show, Chuck. Thanks for coming on with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having, having me. And can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself and about CRPA uh, for anybody who doesn't know? Sure. Uh, California Rifle and Pistol Association is a nonprofit corporation, a nonprofit entity that has been in, been around for 150 years. Uh, it uh, do, does a, a lot of different things. Uh, we have a whole slew of programs that uh, train people to shoot, safety classes, uh, uh, match competitions. We're the uh, we sanction the state championships for the for the competitive rifle matches. Uh, and pistol matches across the state. Uh, but also, I mean, we have um, a lot of different programs that uh, 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 emphasize uh, safety and getting people involved in the shooting sports, showing them how much fun the shooting sports can be, and also how valuable a, a firearm can be to defend yourself or your family. So they've been doing that for a long time. Uh, and uh, since the, 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 Politics in Sacramento changed. They have a lobbyist in Sacramento, CRPA does, a full-time lobbyist up there trying to stop some of these bad bills. And since the politics changed and more bills have gotten through, uh, CRPA has come up uh, to be uh, a leader in uh, litigating to challenge these laws. And we've been doing that for a long time, too, even before Heller, uh, uh, challenging local ordinances and and state gun control laws that you know, obviously don't make us any safer and that uh, take away your right to choose to own a gun to, for sport or to defend your family. So they're located down in Fullerton. They have uh, uh, a lot of support, a lot of donors, a lot of members. Uh, and uh, but their emphasis of late has been on litigation because that's the need uh, right now. It's a target-rich environment with all of the laws that are being pushed by Gavin Newsom and and the rigged Sacramento legislature. So uh, we're very involved in that. Right. And you're also the general counsel for uh, yes. CRPA as well. Yes. Right? So you're, yes. you're intimately familiar with all these these legal fights that are happening. 
Pretty much. You know, there's so many going on across the country right now. It's really hard to keep track of them all. But in California, we're pretty much uh, out front on most of those. Right. And uh, obviously the big one that we just got a decision in uh, is Duncan v. Bonta, which was the the case against um, the 10 round limit that that California places on magazine capacity. Yes. Uh, now, this is sort of a retread, I guess. We had uh, this was District Judge uh, Roger Benitez who issued this ruling. And it's uh, very similar to the ruling that he issued along the same lines a few years ago. But um, you know, after this, after that, a panel agreed with him effectively and ruled three, against three judge panel in the Ninth Circuit mm-hmm. agreed that it was unconstitutional under Heller. Right. Before Bruin came down, it went mm-hmm. on bonk. The on bonk panel uh, in a split decision said, no, the magazine capacity limitation is constitutional. We took it to the United States Supreme Court. This was before Bruin came down. The Supreme Court held it. And after they issued Bruin, they did what's called a GVR, a grant review, vacate the lower court decision and remand the the case back down to the lower court for reconsideration in light of what they had said in Bruin. And so it went from the Supreme Court back down to the en banc panel. Then the en banc panel sent it back down to Judge Benitez to to apply the Bruin analysis that had that had uh, theoretically, at least, although states try and twist it. It clarified a lot of the things that Heller had been uh, that Heller had said, but had been misinterpreted by the courts. And so this is the first decision that's come out uh, of Judge Benitez of four cases pending in front of him. Uh, And they were all kind of backed up behind Duncan uh, in the Ninth Circuit. And then they were all remanded back down to Benitez, too. So we've got the magazine capacity limitation. We've got an assault weapon uh, challenge. There's actually two. CRPA has RUP. And then there's the Miller one in front of Benitez, which I wouldn't be surprised if we see a ruling on that. We, we might see a ruling on one of these other three cases tomorrow. And then the, there's the CRPA's Rody case. That's Kim Rody, the Olympic sport uh, sporting clay shooter that we all should know and love. Right. And then one of the most one, successful Olympians in history, right? Yes. And uh, and then there's a uh, Billy a challenge to the California Billy Club ban, uh, which uh, is also pending in front of Judge Benitez. I think we're going to see three wins on all of those because the state, the judge just gave them every opportunity to put as many historical laws into the record as they wanted to. He gave them multiple briefing opportunities, multiple research opportunities. They they you know they they submitted a stack of pages of all these irrelevant historical laws. You know, remember under Bruin, the test is, is it covered by the language of the Second Amendment itself, keep and bear arms? And and then if it is, and most things are, most bearable arms at least are, uh, then is there a, a historical law that you could, that would compare to the current law that would indicate that the founding fathers in 1791 would have tolerated the, the, the modern day law back then. So you look, it's like a legislative intent analysis. What was the, the purpose behind the Second Amendment when it was passed and what kind of infringements were, intolerated, were tolerated then that would indicate that those kinds of infringements might be tolerated uh, today? So uh, that, 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 that test, that methodology is the big, big fight that's going on in the Ninth Circuit right now Obviously, we all care about magazine limitations. We all care about semi-autos. We care about 
uh, uh, other arms, you know, whether knives or billies or whatever. Uh, and we care about ammo, background checks. There's all these different kinds of restrictions that the state has stacked up on us over the last couple of decades. Uh, but the real question is going to be, and the real difference is going to be made by whether or not courts, whether or not the Ninth Circuit in particular, applies Bruin faithfully the way the Supreme Court intended it to be uh, applied. And they're already twisting that, trying, for example, in the magazine case, they tried to say magazines are not arms. So you have a right to keep and bear arms, but magazines are not arms, so they're not covered. Well, that's not what the Second Amendment, it's not literally only applying to the one, you know, a particular type of firearm or other arm. It's it's about all the ancillary activities, the parts, you know, there's no right to keep and bear a trigger either, but you can't have a gun without a trigger. You can't have a gun without a barrel. Uh, all those parts are part of the arm. And not only that, you know, going to the range, taking your gun in for repair, uh, uh, taking part in competitive or recreational shooting activities, that's all part hunting. That's all part of the Second Amendment's protections. And they want to try and narrow it as much as they possibly can, you know, to make to basically make Bruin not mean anything. So that's the fight we're having right now is whether or not uh, the test is being applied properly. Sure. Yeah. And, and you've seen other uh, judges in the Ninth Circuit take up this uh, arms reasoning of uh, you just had the Washington state magazine limit case came down the opposite direction that that Duncan did. But um, uh, and so, yeah, it's going to be a sure seems like it's going to be a continuing fight. But uh, Duncan in particular is fairly important because it is, as you mentioned, one of the four cases that the Supreme Court specifically GVR'd. And so, you know, it, that tells us something about what the court is perhaps watching closely. I think uh, Young v. Hawaii, right? That was uh, uh, one of the other ones, and that's already been settled with Hawaii. Right. So that one's kind of off the table. You still have the assault weapons ban case in Maryland that hasn't, right. that's kind of just sitting there. It's and been sitting there since been. December. We're really waiting for that one to come down. Right. And then uh, I believe there was another, there was New Jersey's magazine ban. Uh, case as well, which is also sitting uh, list that I recall on that. And so Duncan is kind of the first one to see really significant action, getting a ruling from a district court judge that one is favorable to what you guys want, right? I mean, uh, first off, just tell us what what did Benitez find? What was uh, his his reasoning? He said he said magazines are arms, uh, and so they are covered by the text of the Second Amendment, and they are in common use. And Heller tells us that people get a little confused about what the common use test is. There is, strictly speaking, there is no common use test. There is a historical analog test. And in Heller, remember, Heller was the gun ban test, right. banning handguns in the home, which meant basically banning them everywhere in Washington, D.C. And then Bruin was licensing to carry them in public. They weren't banning any particular handgun. They were just restricting your right to carry one in public for self-defense. Uh, but so under Heller, the court did this analysis under the historical uh, analog approach. The common, common use, yeah. But, but, but it said there is no historical law that bans mm. firearms that are in uh, common right. use right. for lawful purposes. So right. it's common use is not, it's become a shorthand, but it's really not, there's no common use test. There's a historical analog test that says 
And Heller says, if it's in common use for lawful purposes, there is no historical law that ever banned ha- uh, firearms that were in, the, in common use for lawful purposes. The only laws that, that have historically existed were uh, bans of dangerous and, not or, dangerous and unusual weapons, uh, or regulated the manner of carry. You know, you, you, you can't carry them into certain bars or whatever the, the, the laws used to be uh, that, that would say where you could have a gun or uh, if someone was misbehaving, they would require them to put up a bond in order to be able to keep possessing a firearm. They never wholesale took all the guns away from, uh, from any class of people. Uh, so that's, that's really where the fight is. And but Judge Benitez said you know, these are in, these are probably one of the most common things possessed by firearms owners. There's millions of them, millions and millions. Uh, so you can't just ban them. And he also, it, this is a 71-page beautiful opinion that's that's extensively documented. I mean, it's half footnotes. He did not. He knows he's going to be appealed, so he made sure to document everything so that the Court of Appeals uh, is going to have a hard time. Uh, uh, overturning it. Uh, but he said, you know, there, these, these are common. The state can't arbitrarily decide that 10 rounds is all you need for self-defense. Why, who is the state to say how much to ration your ability to defend yourself that way? Uh, so it, it really, it's, it's a beautiful opinion. There's no, he said, there's no historical analog to banning gun parts like this. And so uh, it fails the Bruin test and it's unconstitutional. So it's a great ruling in multiple respects because it's so thorough and also because uh, he applied the Bruin test right. He applied it uh, the way it's supposed to be applied. And the, the, the only other case that's done that so far in the Ninth Circuit is the Tedder case, the butterfly knife case out of Hawaii, where a Ninth Circuit three-judge panel applied the methodology correctly from Bruin. So some of these courts have been buying into the state's arguments that, you know, magazines aren't arms or that some historical Bowie knife restriction is an analogous historical law to the modern day ban on magazines or semi-autos or whatever it is. They're really grasping to try and justify a law with those kinds of flimsy, um, pl- flimsy historical analogs. Uh, and so sooner or later... Uh, the Supreme Court is either a circuit court, and hopefully there will be a consensus, starting probably with the Ninth Circuit, or uh, the Supreme Court will have to get in there and say, you know, you guys read Heller wrong for 12 years, and now you're reading Bruin wrong. And here's what we meant when we said this, that, and the other thing in the Bruin decision. So now get it right from here on out. Yeah, and speaking of that sort of uh, forward path here, we have this ruling from Benitez now. Uh, it has a 10-day stay on it, right? So you're not you're not getting that Freedom Week situation where the law is not in effect. Uh, right. The state the state learned from their mistake the last time around, and preemptively asked the judge to stay his ruling if he was going to rule against them, uh, so right. that there was no lag time between the district court not staying it and the Ninth Circuit having to stay it. But the state is now in the Ninth Circuit asking them to to. Uh, to stay his ruling while it's appealed. Right. Which is not an uncommon thing, right? That that's pretty common in this sort of litigation for stays to, to appear on these sorts of decisions. I know that can be frustrating for a lot of people. uh, Oh yeah. Me too. (laughs) Right. 
Right. You know, you read that the judge has found a law unconstitutional. Well, how can a law unconstitutional law stay in effect? It's it's common because that's how the court system works. You have to go through the layers. But uh, so like you said, it's now it's going to be a, a Ninth Circuit panel. I assume we don't know who the panel is going to be yet. Right. Well, it, 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 that's something we're actually getting ready to to argue about. It should be the same three judge panel. The, the en banc panel has has the ability to keep it. They don't have to send it back down to the three-judge panel, but they usually do. But in this case, they know that if they send it back to the three-judge panel, that three-judge panel is going to rule in our favor, too, because they already ruled in our favor under Heller. Right. And Bruin makes it harder for states to justify a gun control law. So the en banc panel may hold on to it, but th that's something we're trying to, to request that the court do is send it right back to the same three-judge panel that we won, won in the first time. Interesting. So there's some strategic litigation going on here, uh, essentially, you know, trying to uh, trying to go back up the same way you did previously. Correct. Yeah, this is basically we've litigated this case twice. I mean, it's, just, it, it's essentially went all the way from the district court up to the Supreme Court. Now back down in the district court, back to the Ninth Circuit and then who knows where from on from there. So it's you know, it, we had to start over from from the district court level and have to litigate it again. I know it's very frustrating. The courts take a long time. And in fact, when they remanded it to Judge Benitez, one of the judges said, why are we doing this? We know uh, we can decide this without remanding it. We know it's just going to take two more years. Right. But some of the judges on the en banc panel or the Ninth Circuit, you know, it used to be two-thirds Democratic president appointees, and now it's about 50-50 thanks to the Trump administration. But some of those judges want it to go slow. Yeah, because they're hoping there'll be some kind of a change at the Supreme, at the Supreme Court. Court. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, again with the sort of delay uh, tactic involved with with strategic litigation. If you understand, you know, judges can count numbers too, right? Uh, and they understand sort of the implications of of these rulings as well, and what how litigation actually plays out. And so they get stuff like this happening. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, this you kind of just relitigated the whole thing because as much as Bruin changed the standard for federal courts, the idea of using a history test, a history and tradition test was obviously around before Bruin and Benitez put uh, really that test in the initial uh, right, Duncan right. ruling, right? So yeah, that not was much really changed. Yeah. Heller, Heller specifically said interest balancing is not the right approach, not the right standard of review. But the right. courts twisted that. They came up with they, they you know, they called it uh, something else. But it was interest balancing test. with a mustache. It's the mm -hmm. same thing. You're, you're saying the state wants to say, oh, we have this overwhelming public safety interest that outweighs any individual right to possess any particular type or any firearm for self-defense. That, that's the kind of balancing that a court can always put its thumb on the scale and, and come up with whatever result they want. Uh, you, can, you can always in, interpret public safety versus, the, you know, they would say, uh, there was a while there where they were trying to claim that the, the right to keep and bear arms only applied inside your house. Right. So, because I mean, Heller, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, because that was the specific the, question in Heller was about right. inside the home. Right. And, and Heller and Bruin both dealt with firearms for self-defense. That doesn't mean the Second Amendment only covers firearms for self-defense right. or arms of any kind for self-defense. As I said earlier, you know, hunting, target shooting, 
going to the range, getting your gun repaired, uh, 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 all of that, the accessories, all of that is covered. It's all ancillary yeah. activity related to the underlying right to keep and bear arms. Yeah, that's another counter argument you'll see in a lot of courts that uh, where if the judge upholds a magazine restriction, oftentimes, I think this happened in Oregon, where the judge there said that ma these magazines aren't in common use for self-defense. Uh, right. And she put that that qualifier on it that has to be for self-defense. Now, obviously, there's also people dispute how she got to that conclusion, but uh, you know, the, the, it's the standard wrong. itself is is quite different from. Oh, the and the, the state also argued that using means pulling the trigger. If you didn't mm -hmm. pull the trigger, you didn't actually use the gun. You know, mm -hmm. I have a gun in my quick access lock safe near my bed and uh, I'm using it. It's sitting there right now being used as a as a self-defense tool that I hope I never have to pull take out. But it's there. I'm using it for self-defense. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to pull the trigger to use it. And Judge Benitez just shredded the state when they try to argue that. Because obviously, if it's only guns that you actually pull the trigger, then that, that hardly ever happens. Because if you don't, I mean, most times a firearm is brandished, you know, you show the bad guy your firearm and they leave. That's the that's the that's what makes it hard to compare right. criminal misuse versus the social utility of a firearm. The, the the nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, it's not fired. But the yeah. fact that you have it is what deters the, deters the criminal and stops the crime. But that doesn't make the papers because nobody got killed. Uh, it's the right. it's the tragedies that make the paper. And that's when they say, oh, it, uh, the, the tragedies justify infringing on the individual right. Uh, all right. So you uh, clearly expect this to go back to the en banc panel. Um, what, how do you see it coming out? I mean, you sound somewhat optimistic about how that might go. Well, uh, there have been some clarifications in, for example, the Tedder case and some other cases uh, in the Ninth Circuit, some other three judge panels that, that have faithfully applied the Bruin methodology. And we also may get some guidance from the Rahimi case in the, mm -hmm. that's in the Supreme Court right now. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that, that's not the perfect case, perfect vehicle for deciding some of these things because the guy involved, Rahimi, is not that good of a guy. He's certainly not our poster child for gun rights. No, um, no he's not. And he should be disarmed. Uh, but the question is, and he can probably he, will be regardless because he's got yes, he, other he, charges. Oh, against him. absolutely. Absolutely. But the question is, can, does the Second Amendment tolerate, you know, you can't ban everybody from possessing a firearm. Okay, can you ban subclasses? And so the subclasses right now that are already banned from possessing firearms are felons, whether violent or nonviolent, uh, people who use drugs, including cannabis, marijuana. So anybody who ever used marijuana could be, is banned uh, or currently uses uh, certain misdemeanors. Anybody with a restraining order, and never mind how abused the restraining order process is, every family lawyer knows that the best way to get leverage in a divorce proceeding is to accuse the, to get a TRO against the husband or wife, depending, uh, so that they lose their rights on a firearm and they, they are then presumed to be a bad parent. So it's, there's a lot of, I mean, in California, you can get a TRO against somebody without even giving them notice. And a lot of people have 
these prohibitions on them and that they don't even realize it. So uh, it's a problem when the state can arbitrarily deem a certain class of people as prohibited. And, and that's best illustrated by, you know, they disarmed Native Americans and Indians because they didn't want to be able to fight back. And they disarmed freed slaves. They didn't want to give them the right to possess firearms. So it's not a big stretch to say if the state or the government can ban a subclass of people from possessing, then they can just create new subclasses. And it'll be anybody with a beard or anybody who considers himself a patriot or anybody who voted for Trump. You know, it'll be it'll be whatever class they want it to be. So that's it's true. Rahimi is a double edged sword. Sure. Uh, but obviously, like you just mentioned there, Rahimi is mainly about who can uh, who can be barred from owning guns, essentially. Right. What class? Uh, what class? Yeah. Right. See, if it's individualized, like, if you give a person individual due process, I don't really have a problem with taking a gun away from someone who their individual circumstances are evaluated and they're determined to be a threat to themselves or others. Right. That's probably a due process enough to take away someone's rights, any rights, Second Amendment, First Amendment, whatever, uh, depending on whether or not there's enough evidence and that person has a chance to respond to that evidence. But right. when you just just classify a yeah, group of people it, indiscriminately, that's a bigger but problem. How, how do you see that impacting the Duncan case, which is a hardware ban, right? It's a ban on certain it, kinds it, it, of It won't magazines. accept unless, unless the, the Supreme Court in Rahimi clarifies the methodology and says, no, the, the, the textual question is not a test. Everything is an arm and all the related conduct is an arm. You can't say that a barrel is not an arm because it's not a functional firearm. You can't say that a magazine. If they clarify that and take the state's arguments away and maybe clarify uh, some other questions and then and then look at the historical analogs, which some courts are accepting as adequate, but they really aren't, if the Supreme Court also says these historical laws are or are not adequate analogs and, and makes that a little clearer, that could clean up a lot of mess in all the cases, not just uh, the magazine cases, but all the cases going on across the country, whether it's prohibited uh, firearms, prohibited people, prohibited places. You know, those are the three big uh, gun control uh, uh topic areas that they go right. after. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, honestly, anything the Supreme Court says in a Second Amendment case, it will probably have some effect on all the gun cases down below. But uh, yeah, uh, before, I, I also want to get your reaction here to the new laws that were just signed by uh, Governor Newsom out there in California. There's a whole collection of them, from my understanding, but some of the biggest Ticket items were, you know, they, they they finally passed the Bruin response bill, which they failed to do earlier, uh, which restricts, you know, essentially where you can carry guns to a, a very severe degree. Uh, they also added the first state level gun tax, gun and ammunition tax, which the governor has called a sin tax. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then and then they did, uh, you know, se several other things as well. In addition to that, of these policies. Um, you know, which one, which ones do you guys foresee challenging um, and what's your general reaction to them? Well, keep in mind that this is all, but Newsom has stated publicly that what he wants to do is eradicate the gun culture. In other words, murder the gun culture, uh, make it impossible to advertise, throw as many red tapes in the way as you can to buy one, 
ban gun shows, make it impossible to operate a gun range, basically it impossible to operate a gun store, limit the types of handguns or guns at all that can be sold in the state, make it a very narrow selection. All of this is designed and ban advertising. That was his other latest thing, ban advertising for, for firearms so that people who don't own presently and, and, and their children and grandchildren, you know, won't be exposed to this and and will be and guns will be stigma, stigma, stigmatized. Thank yes. you. So that no one will think it's okay to have one. Now that's going to be tough to do when we're selling over a million guns a month for the last four years. I think it is. There's people have embraced firearms ownership, faced with you know rising crime and pandemic and civil unrest and all that. But the point is that it's part of an effort to eradicate the gun culture. Now, at the beginning of this legislative session, there was almost 100 bills introduced, gun control bills. Now, they didn't just come up with 100 bills on their own. Bloomberg law, every town law funded by Bloomberg is coming up with all these things as a way to respond to Bruin. They want to try and overwhelm us with all these all these laws that we have to challenge. And that's those, that's an open secret in the halls of the Sacramento Capitol building. Uh and they want to uh, just red tape everything, you know, to death or ban whatever they can. So the, the the at the end of the session, almost two dozen bills passed, many of which make it harder for FFL to operate or manufacturers to sell. But the two that really got a lot of attention, and we'll be challenging a lot of those when we get the time and can raise the funds. But the two that got the most attention are SB Senate Bill Two which makes it harder to get a CCW, jacks up the qualification requirements. And then even if you get one, uh, it's uh, not good any place that the state has deemed to be a sensitive place. And they're deeming, right. deeming most public areas to be a sensitive place. So you're not going to be able to drive across town with a CCW without crossing through some sensitive place and breaking the law. Do they also the, do the the sort of, uh, I think people have called this the vampire provision. Or the, the signage. Yeah, the the yeah. reversed. They're sort of reversing yeah. the the standard to make it so that you can't right. carry on publicly accessible private property unless they tell you you can with a sign. Right. They Whereas, have to post a it's sign always been that the says, other way around. Right. This is like, uh, you know, <laughs> nobody is going to post a sign that says, sure, bring your gun in. Because that's going to freak people out. And every retailer is going to realize uh, that's controversial. Uh, you know, I post that. And that's what the state, the state knows that. They know that people will not or don't don't want to have to post a sign that says, sure, guns welcome. So that's why they are requiring everybody to post a sign that says guns welcome if they want to have people bringing firearms in. But that's not the way it works. The way it works is if you're a private property owner, you're not the government. You're the private property owner. You can ban people from coming onto your property with a firearm. You can prohibit that. And if they do, it's trespass. But you have to post a sign that says your gun is not welcome here or no guns allowed or whatever it right. may be. That's how it's always been traditional. That's the way it uh, has to be. And we've challenged that. So immediately. So you've before already, SB, already filed suit there? Before SB2 was even signed, we knew he was going to sign it. We wanted to steal some of his glory. We filed uh, uh, about a week before he signed it and then served it on the DOJ the day he signed it. And we've already worked out a briefing schedule with the Department of Justice uh, where we're going to file, you know, we set up a schedule for our file, our motion for preliminary injunction. They file their opposition. We file our reply. And we're set to have a hearing 
assuming the judge approves this, which I think he will, on December 4th. So the law okay. goes into effect on January 1st. We should have a ruling before then that says. Uh, so you're hoping to block is, the law before it gets into effect. Correct. Correct. Okay. And, and, that, and this has already happened in Hawaii, New York, New Jersey. Yeah. You know, these laws have already been tested. Right. That's the one advantage we have of it. Yeah, being, it's kind of rare for you guys. Huh? It didn't I get mean, through last year. Usually, so the uh, other states did it first. Yeah, usually California is pushing the envelope on this stuff, but uh, they, yes, they sort of miscalculated in their first time around on whether they could get the votes needed because they wanted the it to go in. Yeah, they wanted to do it on an emergency basis, but they couldn't yes. quite get there. So um, they didn't right, get so two thirds. But yeah, California is the moldy petri dish for <laughs> laboratory experiments of bad, gun, ill-conceived, useless gun control laws, and has uh, been for decades. Well, one area where you're still ahead of everyone else is this the syntax that the governor is, uh, as he's called it, on yes. firearms and ammunition. What's How much tax is 11%, I believe? 11%. On top of the $37 that everybody already pays in fees for a background mm. check and all the other stuff that you got to pay for when you buy a gun. Uh, so they're trying, this is part of the gun culture eradication project. You know, they want to price people out of the market. Uh, so a $500 gun is now going to cost $550. Then you slap on the Pittman-Robinson 11% federal tax. It's a 20% tax on on purchasing a firearm that's a fundamental right. So, you know, Newsom called it a sin tax. Well, the thing is, gun owners are not, they didn't commit any sins. They're not sinners. And it's not a sin to own a gun. So uh, it's a poll tax. It's a tax on your constitutional right uh, that's being foisted on to law-abiding gun owners. They're not the ones out there uh, committing crimes. The, you know, the, the, the criminals are doing that, and they're not just doing it with firearms. It's a, this is a generalized societal problem that should come out of the general fund for funding police activity, which is what all other police activities are funded through. And also, you know, he says, oh, we're going to spend $75 million on school safety programs. Well, California has a $310 billion budget. And if this is so important, and Newsom has said again and again, this is his, you know, one of his top priorities. If it's so important, you're telling me you couldn't find 75 or $150 million, whatever they think they're going to raise off this tax. You couldn't find that in the general budget and put these, these urgently needed programs in place before. If there was such a great idea, why did you do it? Why did you do it a long time ago? Yeah. And it's, the this answer is they're not. They just want to make it more expensive to buy a gun. Yeah, this this I think will be a really interesting one to follow because, uh, you know, the government generally has a pretty wide berth to tax things. But at the same time, like you said, a, a poll tax can be uh, first of all, this is the first one that we've seen, uh, which makes it a bit probably a bit harder to justify under the Bruin test. Uh, and also, you know, it, it it the governor is explicitly saying they're just doing this to try and discourage people from buying guns. So it would be really interesting to follow that one. I mean, um, a syntax is a syntax is tobacco or, or right. alcohol, alcohol, but yeah. you don't have a fundamental constitutional right to smoke a cigarette or to to buy cigarettes or to drink alcohol, you know, uh, but you do. But I just think it's interesting. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting court case, given how blatantly straightforward he's been on why they want to. Yes, he made, some, he made some very interesting comments, which we will be quoting in our lawsuit. Uh, <laughs> about the, the about the legislative animus, the, it's 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 designed to uh, try and make it harder to buy a gun. 
Hmm. All right. And we will, we will have to have you back on once that case gets rolling and we get some more developments on it. And remember these other cases too. Really appreciate you joining the show and giving it, giving us uh, some insight into what's going on out there in California. Um, and can you just tell people a little bit more about, you know, if they want to follow up with CRPA, how they can do that? Yeah, look, I mean, we're, we're going to file as many lawsuits as we can afford. I do a lot of the work for CRPA pro bono or at greatly reduced nonprofit rates. So we stretch every dollar as far as it can go. Uh, but we have we depend on uh, donors and supporters and members to fund this, these lawsuits. So you can join at CRPA.org. Let me also give a shout out to the Second Amendment Law Center, which is another nonprofit. See, when you file a, a case and you put in your motion papers, the parties can't fund or write friend of the court amicus briefs. An outside third party has to do that. So the Second Amendment Law Center has stepped up to be the sort of the amicus coordinator. We're coordinating amicus campaign in the Rahimi case right now. And we did one in Hawaii, Delaware, uh, uh, a number of other states. Uh, where the parties, you know, you have page limitations, court-imposed page limitations. So the parties can't cover as much territory as they really need to in their in their limited briefs. So the SecondAmendmentLawCenter.org, 2ALC.org, uh, steps in and coordinates those amicus campaigns. So those are two very, very uh, uh, necessary and, and worthwhile uh, causes nonprofits to donate to. Uh, they both have a C3 component if you're looking for the tax donation, uh, tax deduction. So, yeah, we need the support. The more we, the more funds we can raise, the more lawsuits we can file. And there are a lot. It's a target-rich environment right now. I, I suspect as time goes by, the issues we become narrower and narrower and narrower. That's fine. You know, we'll be litigating. Uh, in fact, we're already getting ready to file against L.A. County Sheriff for their delays in, issue, in processing CCW applications. Mm. There will be people getting de- denied or delayed. There will be, you know, CCWs have gone, by the way, from 100,000 before Peruta, 200,000 after Peruta and, and up to Bruin, and now th- another 100,000 have been issued roughly since Bruin. So there's 300,000 three CCWs in California, and CRPA is constantly poking these local jurisdictions, forcing them to issue and speed up mm. the process. But we need a million or a couple million. Uh, so Yeah, that would be more in line with what the other large states have had in the past. So there's a lot of room for growth there for sure. All yeah. right, we are we are going to head over to the news update now, but we will bring you back on again in the future to to keep us updated with everything that's going on. And uh, what is the what is California's nickname? The Golden Golden State. State. Yeah, yeah. Well, I should know. Right? The Golden yeah. State Warriors. Yeah, right? look in the streets <laughs> of San Francisco. You see what kind of gold they're talking about with all the homeless. <laughs> But yeah. uh, uh, um, look, hey, thank you for getting the word out. It's very important for people to stay informed on this stuff and understand what's happening. Some of this gets into the, you know, the wonky weeds of legalese. And uh, I try. And but that's where we're at home. So we're, we appreciate you doing that. Um, but all right. Well, we will have you on again real soon. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Look forward to it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty well, Jake. Um, as you could see here, I'm wearing my Phillies 90s throwback uh, jersey today because we clinched the, not only the wild card, but the first place in the NL wild card, which means we'll get home advantage in the three game wild card that uh, that we're, we're going to be in here against whoever 
whatever sloppy team manages to grab that last <laughs> second to last spot, we'll see who that ends up being the Cubs or the Diamondbacks or whoever. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. And then, uh, by the way, we're filming on Thursday. So uh, the Phillies clinched on Tuesday and then they had like a big blowout party, right? Where they, with champagne and beer, everybody does this stuff, but, but uh, you know, they, they went nuts and they're, um, and they got wasted and then they came back and had another game on Wednesday. And a lot of the starters were sitting obviously because it doesn't matter, but uh, they're playing the pirates who are bad. Um, but uh, they, and then they won <laughs> anyway, and they're hung, they're hangover game and Stubbs <laughs> who's our backup, uh, backup catcher who was wearing an over, who was wearing Philly's overalls and nothing else at the party um, and just getting wasted. He hit his first home run of the season in, in this hangover game. So it's pretty funny, pretty entertaining time. But yeah, I'm looking I, forward to October. I was gonna say I, I watched your your tweet storm about all this happening with a lot of envy because <laughs> right now the Colorado sports teams that are playing are pretty pitiful. The Broncos are struggling. The Rockies oh are gosh. an embarrassment. So <laughs> yeah, that's rough. I mean, the Rockies are they in last? They're pretty close. Yeah, I think they lost yeah. 100 games this year. It's Oof. It's Man. Not. And then the, the Broncos gave up 70 points. Yeah, been pretty rough. And then the Buffs got crushed by Oregon. It's just been a little bit rough yeah. here in Colorado. No, We're waiting for the Avs and the Nuggets to come back because they're the good teams in the state. Yeah, I bet. I guess yeah. the Avs are right around the corner at least. Yeah. Uh, not as excited about the Flyers, but we'll, we'll see how they, I don't know. they drafted some Russian guy who's amazing but isn't going to play here for several years and also is Russian in, in Russia, so probably not. Uh, who knows how that's going to end up right, right. <laughs> at this point <laughs> with them, you know, invading an American ally and so forth. Uh, I don't know how our hockey programs are going to withstand all that. I guess they've, they're still working right now, but anyway, um, yeah, it's 70 points, man. And didn't the, didn't the dolphins at the end of that game have a chance to kick a field goal and they just, they did. Like, yeah. Mercy ruled it pretty which much is weird. Yeah. Cause that would have been a, I think that would have been the record. It would have, yeah. If they would have hit the field goal, it would have been the all-time record. I I don't understand the idea of doing mercy after you've already scored 70 right. points. It's almost more embarrassing, what? right? Yeah, it's almost a little more not? embarrassing. To- <laughs> why not just just go for the gold there? I don't get that, but whatever. Uh, the Dolphins yeah. look good, I guess. Yeah. That's the takeaway from that. The Eagles are 3-0, though, so, uh, you know, uh, not getting too high on the Dolphins. Got a great offense, but... Eagles got a great everything at this point. Yep, Birds are rolling. Anyway, I'll be in Phoenix once again this weekend for the, the Google conference news guys. And be really interesting to see how that goes. I'm a little bit concerned. Don't tell the other attendees of this thing, but they seem like kind of like they're like news executive types, I think. Um, and I don't know, you know, that I don't want to, a bunch of nerds to try and keep me from watching the Eagles game <laughs> on Sunday is kind of the bottom line. I don't know what's going to happen. Google does NFL Sunday ticket now. So I, hopefully there's some connection here and they let me watch this Eagles game. <laughs> Otherwise I'll have to duck out right, <laughs> or say, something. Hey guys, it's great it to meet you, but the birds are three and oh, so I'm going to yes. see you later. Yeah. <laughs> and we're playing the commanders. So that should be interesting because uh, they look great through two weeks and then real bad last week. So uh, we'll see what team co- shows up. Uh, but yeah, anyway, anyway, now that we've got through our sports update section of the podcast, 
Uh, did you go shooting, by the way, last weekend? I think you were planning yeah, to, right? Yeah, I, I was planning to, but I ended up uh, catching a little bit of a cold and it was under the weather over Ooh. the weekend. So, yeah, it was, it was. I got to watch my teams get destroyed on TV while also being sick. So it was a, a great last last weekend. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I uh, I just got my flu and COVID, all you know, the shots or whatever. Same at the same time in the same arm. I feel fine, actually. The arm's slightly sore, but I was expecting a little bit more of a punch after that. I'm you know, flying on Friday, so I was like, well, if I'm going to get a flu shot and a booster or whatever, I should probably do it before I go back to the air. I would have liked to have done it the week before because I was flying to Phoenix two weekends in a row, which, by the way, just so much fun. Uh, just six hours of flying over the course. It's really like 12 hours of flying, you know, back and forth over the course of a weekend always i recommend it just try everybody should try to do that every weekend it's yeah so cross-country flights yeah and plus phoenix they have that weird thing where they don't do daylight savings and so uh it's always a sort of a crapshoot what hour difference you're going to get but right now it's the worst one it's the pacific time uh so they're three hours behind so that makes everything crazier although i do like staying on east coast time when i'm out in pacific time because then i feel like a real adult because i'm getting up at like you know six in the morning or five in the morning right um which i don't do here you know <laughs> i don't get up early normally so then i feel like i'm you know i'm like an early riser out in the west coast because it's really 9 a.m and i'm actually sleeping in but uh it is it's a nice advantage to do that um of course, then I, I have to go to sleep at like 9, 9 p.m. So <laughs> <laughs> it's the only, that's the only uh, downside of it. But uh, anyway, what, uh, what do we got going in the news world this week? Yeah, so a couple of links from the newsletter. Uh, we got a story from Fox News about an interesting uh, armed teacher program in the state of Indiana, where I guess a few different school districts, they don't get into too many specifics, I think probably for obvious reasons, uh, but... Uh, have adopted programs where the one they're permitting armed staff to take training and to be, you know, armed in case of active shooter situations in schools. Uh, but the way they have it set up is that they will be, I guess, stashing the, the guns won't be on the teacher's persons. They will be strategically stashed in locations in biometric safes that are undisclosed and are only made aware to teachers that are a part of this program, uh, which is interesting. I don't think I've heard of this before, especially not on this sort of scale. So kind of an interesting story there yeah i mean it's definitely an interesting different tactic i mean it certainly heard of schools that obviously have armed teachers or yeah. armed staff um, or have you know safes where they lock up guns and and stuff but i haven't heard of like a concerted program across a number of different school districts well, are these public schools by the way uh i Do once you know? again i don't think they specify i and it's mm. sort of like you have to opt in if they are public i would guess they're probably smaller public school districts, probably in rural areas of the state. That's how it works here in Colorado, at least. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting tactical shift because, you know, I did armed teacher training at Faster Colorado, which is, uh, you know, there's Faster Ohio, Faster Colorado. There's a couple of these programs that arm, uh, you know, train teachers to carry in school. And I know, you know, for concealed carriers, usually the, the meta there, the ethos is, to uh, always want the gun on your person instead of, you know, I mean, usually that's, you know, instead of in a bag or something, a purse or something like that, but, um, or in your truck or something. And so I don't, I don't know, in a, in a 
building defense scenario, maybe it's not as much of an issue to have it in a safe instead of in on your person. Uh, that's definitely an interesting new program, though. We'll have to see if it catches on elsewhere. Yeah. <clears throat> and then speaking of Kerry, uh, our other link from the newsletter we're going to talk about was a big write-up in the Washington Post yesterday uh, where they sent a reporter down to Texas to talk about how, I guess, Texas is some unique bastion of, of gun carriers, or so the piece would have you believe. Uh, you had a pretty good tweet thread kind of responding to this article. Yeah, you know, I thought the article was actually really well reported, right? Like, if you read the article, they do a good job of giving space to these various gunners. They talk to a bunch of them uh, from all different kinds of backgrounds, from different parts of the country who've moved to Texas, different races, sexes, uh, you know, all that stuff. So they do a really good job of, of actually giving these people a voice and letting them explain their point of view, which is quality reporting, in my opinion. The only, yeah, the only weird thing about it to me was sort of the framing or just like the idea of doing this uh, as a Texas story, right? I mean, obviously Texas has like a reputation for being a very gun-friendly state. Um, a lot of people there own guns. That's all true. But what they've found um, from these people that they interviewed was basically the same story you're going to find almost anywhere in the country. It's really not a Texas specific story. Um, and that's the only thing that I had an issue with as far as the framing of the piece goes. Like this is the Washington Post, right? Washington DC is where they're based. Uh, just across the river here from where I am. And, um, you know, why, why go to the, why go to Texas to write the story? You could have written a story in Virginia or Maryland or even DC to some extent, like you can carry in DC. Um, it's a little bit harder, but it is possible. I mean, now you, you know, they don't even have, they haven't even done a Bruin response bill, right? They, they've got uh, their shall issue. <laughs> By the way, update on my situation. When I had to go up to the farm that day, uh, for people who remember this, that whole <laughs> crazy ordeal, that day was the day I was supposed to drop off my DC <laughs> concealed carry permit application. And so I couldn't. And I had to reschedule it. And so now it's in December um, <laughs> because the, the system, not yeah. great uh, and intentionally so, I'm sure. But uh, regardless, you can carry in D.C. You will find people with these same stories in Washington, D.C. But and, you know, even more so in Virginia, especially the further you get away from the city. Um, there wasn't anything particularly super unique about uh, these these different people they talk to and how they view firearms. Um, it, and, and also they, they don't say that Texas's laws are outliers, but the, it just, the framing implies that. Right. But they're not right. Texas's gun laws are pretty similar to most other states gun laws. The real outliers with gun laws are, you know, deep blue states outside of, there's a couple of like red state things like, some of these silencer nullification laws or something like that, or second amendment sanctuary laws that are statewide. Those are a little more rare, but most of the stuff they talk about in the piece, like concealed carry laws or these very, uh, you know, that they don't require universal background checks. Those things are more common than not in the United States. And so that was my only, the only thing I found odd about the story is like, why is this framed around Texas? And, sort of implies that Texas is unique in these ways when it's it's really not. Right. Yeah. And but still good to see uh, 
like you said, normal people getting a chance to kind of give their side of the of why they carry guns yeah. in, a, in a major outlet like the Washington Post. So it's interesting. I piece. mean, I still think people should read it. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's good reporting. I just, yeah, the frame, the, the concept for the piece was a bit odd to me. That's all. Yeah. Uh, and then on to some of the stories we reported this week. So we had a, a ruling out of Washington State where a federal judge just uh, denied a preliminary injunction uh, against the state's ban on magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds. Um, so this is sort of a competing ruling with uh, the one that we talked about in the main interview uh, with with Chuck Mitchell. But um, the judge in this case decided that she couldn't determine at this point if magazines are considered arms protected by the Second Amendment. So she couldn't uh, issue an injunction on it. Um, but she didn't rule out potentially changing her mind on the merits, but still definitely a, a setback for for gun owners in the in Washington state. Yeah, you've seen this basic logic play out in a couple of different court cases where the argument is that the law doesn't touch the text of the Second Amendment because at least um, large capacity magazines, however that uh, is defined in the given state because the definition is different from state to state, uh, right? Some of them are 10 rounds, some is 15, some are 17. Isn't, is, does Washington have different definition one of these states in, in Northwest has a different definition based on whether it's a handgun or, or a rifle. So Washington is, is 10 across the board, but Illinois okay. separates it by rifle and, and handgun. I think Oregon does too. But either way, um, you get the idea. <laughs> there's no there's no actual real definition. Nobody agrees on what high capacity means um, in these laws. But regardless, uh, that, the argument is that they're not protected by the second amendment's text because they aren't arms uh, because the guns can still function with magazines that hold uh, fewer than 10 rounds and a bit of an odd bit of an odd argument that's caught on i think yeah Uh, i don't see the supreme court adopting that that logic at any point um especially because i mean semi-automatic firearms that accept magazines also could operate without any magazine at all. Right. You can put a round in the chamber and make the gun function. It won't uh, it won't load a new round, obviously, because there's no magazine. But you, so there's no real theoretical limit to this line of thinking. Right. Um, you could just ban on all all magazines at that point. Anyway, uh, you know, the, but it's important to cover these things because, um, you know, we covered the cases where they win gun rights. Up, proponents win and we want to cover cases where the gun control proponents win as well yeah um, and give people a good understanding of what the legal arguments are and how they're unfolding so yep that's a good point and in particular washington state the gun control proponents do seem to be winning a lot more in that state for some reason uh they also had their assault weapon ban upheld by a judge uh who made sort of similar arguments so it's just interesting to note that it's not across the board even in some states these things might be getting struck down it's not always the case in other states so yep it's, and it's important people understand that. Yeah. Uh, and so the final thing we want to talk about today is sort of uh, a controversy that you were kind of involved in on Twitter uh, involving the former president and potential kind of walking up to the line of a potential crime involving a, a gun sale. If you want to kind of detail this. Sort people. of claiming that he committed a crime, to be honest, yeah. or at least his <laughs> campaign did. Yeah. yeah, he former President Trump was at a campaign stop at Palmetto State Armory in South Carolina. Um you know, just talking with people in the shop and somebody showed him uh, a gun that had his face on it, uh, which, you know, if you've ever been to like a trade show or 
even uh, in in a number of gun, a lot of gun stores will have this gun. There's a couple companies that make guns that have his face and 45, 45th president, you know, engraved into them. Um, and which actually kind of made his reaction a little bit odd to me because he was very excited about this and acted as though he had never seen one of these before, which I find pretty hard to believe. But regardless, <laughs> that's not the important part of the story. Um, he he then said he was going to buy one. Uh, and and then the, the person showing it to him actually said he would give them uh, the gun and he didn't have to buy it. But, but then Trump said, no, I'm going to buy one. Uh, and then the video sort of cuts off. They're doing like a photo, sh just a little photo op thing. And they take pictures with the gun. And the South Carolina attorney general is there while this is all happening. And um, and then, you know, you don't see him actually try to buy the gun in the video. Uh, but then his campaign spokesman uh, announces that he bought this gun. He actually did, in fact, buy this Glock that has a space on it, um, which, by the way, I think it was a nine millimeter Glock. Uh, which just feels like a missed opportunity. I think most of these you see them on guns that are chambered in 45 because yeah. he was the 45th president. And that makes sense. Like auto ordinance makes 1911s that have his face and they make a Thompson that have his, has his face because those are 45 caliber <laughs> firearms. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked on the actual like fairly serious story that I'm, I'm trying to get across here. Um, so his campaign claimed that he did buy this gun. And, you know, when he when he stopped there and I should have written about this a while back, because as soon as he was indicted, I thought this was going to become an issue, because when you're a pro Second Amendment candidate or you run as a pro Second Amendment candidate, uh, oftentimes the campaign trail, people try to give you guns right? as commemorative guns. It's not an uncommon thing to happen. Uh, and it's perfectly legal in uh, basically every other time this has happened. But unfortunately, for Donald Trump, he's under a felony indictment in multiple jurisdictions, and federal law prohibits anyone under felony indictment from receiving firearms, new firearms, uh, which effectively means you can keep the guns that you already have. It's a bit of a weird law, to be honest with you, uh, it, for this reason. But you can keep the firearms you have, and you can shoot them, you can handle them, all that. Um, but you can't get new ones. You can't buy them. You can't receive them as gifts. Uh, thing, things of that nature. I, I, whether you can take photo ops with them, I think is uh, less clear. I don't think I've ever seen anyone charged for something like that. So he's probably okay on that front. I guess it depends on how far a prosecutor would want to push this definition of receive. There really isn't, it's not defined in the statute. But uh, regardless, they, you know, uh, once I saw he was at this gun store, I tweeted like, um, this could get interesting because he can't legally buy a gun. And then he's, you know, then all that happened. His campaign claimed he legally bought it. And I said, did this actually happen? Because it would be illegal for him to do that. And uh, that's when, you know, I was like trying to figure out somebody on the ground. There was a CNN reporter there. I think there was a reporter from the Daily Caller. And um, yeah, it created a whole firestorm and the campaign eventually deleted their tweets and said no he did not buy the gun um you know which which actually in and of itself is kind of unusual thing i mean how often does the trump campaign admit that they lied about something right um i don't know that i've really seen that at all <laughs> um in this campaign so that but they did in this case or at least tacitly admitted it because they deleted the tweets and they said he didn't buy the gun 
Um, and you know, I honestly, I figured he didn't the whole time because more because, uh, I wouldn't think that somebody at Palmetto state armory would actually sell him the truck because the problem, the other side of it is it's not just illegal for Trump. It would be illegal for them too. It'd be illegal for anyone who's, uh, knowingly trying to sell a gun or give a gun to somebody under felony indictment. That's also a crime. So I, and I mean, I I know that a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of uh, Trump fans on Twitter who got very upset with me and just don't understand how the gun laws work and tried to claim a number of things. One, the first one is that it's not illegal because he's not, he hasn't been convicted because most people know that convicted felons can't possess guns. Um, and if he were convicted, he wouldn't be able to even touch the firearm. But um, a lot of people don't understand that you also can't receive new guns when you're under felony indictment, uh, even though this is a question on the background check. You know, I, I understand most people, even if you bought a gun, don't have all the questions memorized. But, you know, perhaps before yelling at somebody <laughs> pointing these <laughs> things out, you should do five seconds of research on this stuff. Um, but uh, it, it is literally a question on the background check that section where if you've bought enough guns, you probably have the pattern mechanized of what the right. Yes. No answers are, you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's the, <laughs> there's this questions where you get to put yes and no, and there's a certain pattern because there's, I guess they, they have one that tries to sort of trip you up. So you don't just all one, uh, uh, all one column there. Anyway, regardless, um, the other, the other issue that everyone brought up, which is something that I mentioned when I first was talking about this is there have, there has been challenges to this pro prohibition in federal law, right? There was even, there have even been a couple of successful ones. There was one that got uh, some media attention, um, including from us. We wrote, yeah, we you actually, <laughs> you wrote the story, yeah. but, uh, yeah, like, uh, this is why I remembered all this. This is why it was in my head when he got indicted because last year, there was a man who was uh, facing charges uh, for this exact crime, and he uh, uh, used the Second Amendment defense and won his case. Right, and the judge, uh, district judge in that case, found that the the prohibition is uh, unconstitutional and dismissed his indictment. And so, of course, people don't really understand. Your average person doesn't understand how federal courts really work and what different rulings actually mean in practice. But uh, so they just assume that because this case had happened, that this law is no longer in effect. But that's not true. Right. Um, district court rulings don't have any binding precedent on uh, on other courts at all. Right. Like uh, uh, appeals court level rulings, circuit court rulings do on their circuit. Right. And this case was in the Fifth Circuit, which just doesn't include South Carolina anyway. But but um, they also rarely impact enforcement of a federal law across the country. This has been a controversial thing over the last few years. Nationwide injunctions, the Supreme Court has pushed back on that. You know, having a single district court judge block enforcement of a law across the country is not something they usually are very happy with. Right. Uh, and you've seen this come up in a number of gun rights cases since uh, you know, the last year or two, because, um, for instance, the the uh, was it the, the pistol brace case? I think they, you know, the plaintiffs wanted a nationwide injunction, but the court wouldn't give them one. 
right. because of this, because the Supreme Court has, you know, indicated they don't like this practice that had gotten kind of out of hand, I think, over the last five or six years. And so anyway, there have also been a number of judges that have actually upheld this right. this injunction or this uh, this prohibition, including one who did the Bruin analysis and came to the opposite conclusion of the, the district judge in Texas. So the question is unsettled. It is, there is a constitutional question here, right? Uh, no doubt, especially since Bruin, but it's not one that has been settled and it's this law is still in effect. So if he had gone through with this purchase, it would have been a crime for, well, everyone involved really, uh, at least once he received the gun. Now this was a handgun, so he would have had to transfer it from that store to a licensed dealer in Florida. I think some, like very, this is why I was skeptical that he actually bought this gun from the beginning because there's no way that's, and nobody along the line would point out that you can't do this. I mean, even when he's just going through to fill out the background check, you would get to the question whether or not you're under felony indictment. And, and there's no credible, I think, argument that the people selling him the gun would be unaware that he's under felony. Everybody in the country knows he's under felony indictment. Right. That's, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so that happened. Uh, there was a whole thing. I was on, I went on CNN to talk about this on, uh, it was a Tuesday night, I guess. Or, no, it was Monday. <laughs> it was Monday night because it was during the Eagles game. Um, so I was streaming the game right before I went on. Don't tell CNN this, everybody. <laughs> but uh, before before my hit started, I was streaming the game on my phone to make sure I didn't miss anything. I actually did miss the safety because that was happening as I was talking. But anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, the other interesting aspect of this and uh, kind of rolls into the last thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, all this happened. And, you know, the, the front runner of the Republican Party uh, nomination is somebody who both has policy vulnerabilities on guns from the right, at least, right? Because he, he unilaterally implemented the bump stock ban and has defended it. He defended it in that CNN town hall a while back, um, even though it's been found unconstitutional by multiple courts, federal appeals courts at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, he has obviously accomplishments that he can point to, namely the appointment of several Supreme Court justices who, we're in the majority in Bruin, right? So it's not like he can't, he doesn't have any defense for these things, but he, he does, there are vulnerabilities there. There are positions where uh, candidates can draw contrast with him, especially Ron DeSantis, who is, we've covered, had, has gone out of his way to, I think, enact pro-gun policies, permitless carry, um, the banking protection bill that they got. And, uh, you know, he also can't legally buy a gun. Right. I mean, that's pretty rough position to be in if you're the going to be running as the pro-gun candidate in a Republican primary. Uh, but the debate happened last night. Right. Uh, you watched, I'm sure. As oh, yeah. Did I. And uh, did you see anyone talk about Trump's gun policies at all or mention yeah. any of this? I say they hardly talked about Trump, period, for one. But at, right. specifically on guns. No, they didn't. Once again, we saw this in the first debate. We've seen it on the campaign trail. And once again, in a highly televised network <laughs> second debate, not a single person, like, as you said, particularly Ron DeSantis, who's not only trailing Trump 
uh, in the second pole position, but also, as you said, has his own gun record to run on. Didn't even <laughs> raise a single point against that. So it's it's bizarre to me, no. I think. It's very odd to watch, especially that debate last night. And maybe part of it is how the how Fox carried out the space. I mean, they've asked about guns policy twice. In, so they've asked about it in both debates. But they basically asked the exact same question, uh, which which is also sort of an odd question for Republican primary debate, because it's basically like mass shootings happen more often in the United States. It's uh, it's sort of the same question you would hear throughout a lot of major media, which is like, uh, you know, why doesn't so the implication is why don't we have more gun control laws like other countries do, uh, like other Western, you know, developed countries? That's basically the point of the question that they had both nights. And which is kind of like that's not I don't think what Republican primary voters want to want to hear about on a, in a primary debate. Right? Like that's not the gun policy stuff that they're interested. In. They're interested in like permitless carry. Do you support uh, national reciprocity for concealed carry permits, that, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, we go, are you going to remove silencers from the NFA? That, that sort of thing is um, more what you hear about when you talk to people who care about gun policy in the Republican Party. Not uh, this idea that we don't have enough gun control laws, which was the basis of both of these questions. And um, so I thought that was a bit odd. And it didn't it didn't produce anything interesting in terms of policy responses. You had Burgum just sort of said boilerplate stuff about, um, you know, that we focus too much on going after law-abiding Americans uh, over their guns instead of criminals, right? Pretty common viewpoint in the Republican Party. Uh, Pence offered up a, sort of a policy position on uh, he wants expedited death sentences for mass shooters. Um, and so that was sort of unique, but also like, kind of, I mean, is that really a gun policy? I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a death, uh, death penalty policy for particularly egregious crimes, I guess. Um, and then nothing else. And nobody, the other thing about it is like, so I don't know that they've been set up really well to talk about gun policy in these debates by the moderators at this point, but also like, if anyone has ever watched a modern political debate on TV, you know that candidates often just don't care what they get asked. Right. And will say whatever they want to say to get their message out. And so it's telling that nobody took an opportunity to try and differentiate themselves on gun policy at all. Um, even when you've had DeSantis doing the stuff he's done in Florida that we mentioned, and you've had, um, I mean, even like, Vivek's been out there trying to differentiate himself by when he goes on. Uh, I think he was on with Koyan Noir and he talked about wanting to completely repeal the NFA, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. So that's a pretty uh, distinct position. I don't think anyone else in the Republican primary has that position. Um, but he never brought anything like that up either. So I don't know. The candidates don't seem to view this as a very important issue. It was one of the things that tells me, uh, honestly, you and I think that's kind of odd because Republican primary voters consistently rank it as a pretty high issue on uh, among issues that they care about. And uh, and again, with DeSantis, like he's he spent like his, the last year setting up this policy uh, portfolio that he could match up against Donald Trump. Uh, and he just outside of uh, one interview with Dana Lash uh, a couple months ago, 
and a single ad from their from the super PAC that's supporting him that went after Trump uh, for his policy, you know, first comments on supporting taking the guns first and having due process later, the stuff he said after Parkland. Um, he really hasn't done anything on this issue. He hasn't even highlighted his own record, um, which is it's just kind of baffling to me at this point, especially with these guys all 30 to 40 points behind Donald Trump. And you're not, you're barely mentioning him. I mean, there was a little bit more this time than last time, uh, but not a lot. I, <laughs> if you're going to run against Donald Trump, I don't understand why you don't run against Donald Trump. <laughs> you know right. I mean? Like, I, I understand that some of these, I think DeSantis especially had a strategy of like, especially back at the beginning of the race when he was much closer to Trump in the polls, he just kind of hoped that he faded away and then not piss off the people that like him so that they would you know, move on over to the DeSantis column. But that obviously hasn't happened. And so, you know, what everyone's doing now outside of people who don't have any realistic shot of winning like Chris Christie, right? Um, it's just kind of a, it's kind of weird to watch. Like, I don't know, like they, they all want to run for second, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> They're all running to be on uh, in the cabinet or something. Yeah. It is bizarre. It is bizarre, especially because this is an issue, like you said, he's uniquely vulnerable on. And at least some of the candidates have unique attributes, at least in terms of rep what Republican primary voters care about. So just bizarre. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, obviously I'm sure there's plenty of people who support Donald Trump that just wouldn't ever consider any of these guys anyway. Uh, and so you're not going to reach them regardless, but if that's your, if you think that's a majority of the Republican voters, then why are you even running? <laughs> this would be the, the sort of question of all of these candidates. Like uh, either you go after the person at the top of the heap or like, how are you going to win? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that's all we've got for this week. Um, <clears throat> we will of course stay on top of all of these stories, especially the, the Republican primary and, and how guns play into that is, uh, and, how they play into the general election next year. And uh, yeah, but that's all we've got for this week. If you want to help uh, us keep this thing going, you can head over to reload.com and sign up for our free newsletter. If you haven't already, just get a taste of what we do here. And then of course, if you want more of our analysis and you want to actively support what we're doing, then you can buy a membership as well. You'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of reporting analysis you won't find anywhere else. And you'll have the opportunity to listen to this show a day early and the chance to appear on it in a member segment, uh, as well as ask questions during our Q&A episodes. So go ahead over and consider signing up today. We greatly appreciate it. If you're not in a position to do that at the moment, then please uh, support us in other ways, like reviewing the show, giving us five-star ratings on whatever app you're listening to this on. Those That really helps grow our reach. Uh, and liking it on YouTube and sharing it with your friends. All that stuff helps. But that's it for this week. We will see you guys again real soon.